0: to the gut vibes podcast with your host and registered dietitian lauren mccarthy this podcast was created to bring awareness about gut health and how nutrition has the transformational power to help restore and bring balance to your body hey everyone and welcome back to the gut vibes podcast this is your host and registered dietitian lauren mccarthy I'm excited to introduce our guest speaker this evening, Dr. Susan Trackman. She is a board-certified adult and forensic psychiatrist with over 30 years of experience who is passionate about exploring medically unexplained illnesses through the lens of psychiatry. In addition to private practice, she holds academic appointments at George Washington University and Virginia Commonwealth University, where she teaches medical students, residents, and post-residency fellows in psychiatry psychiatry she's a columnist at psychology today so today our topic is going to be connection between the leaky gut and mood disorders so i'm going to let dr trackman take it away
1: well thank you very much first of all for inviting me i appreciate it uh and for the opportunity to talk about the connection between uh the brain and the gut or like we call the brain gut axis so It's an interesting uh, phenomenon of how this t- took place before you were even a little fetus. So when you were just a bundle of cells, as I'd like to explain to my own patients, when you were a bundle of cells, there was a primitive structure called the neural crest that developed into your brain and spinal cord. And from the same collection of cells, another group of them migrated further south and now live inside your gut and that is called the enteric nervous system. There is a literal direct connection between your brain and your gut through a very big nerve called the vagus nerve. If you think about it as a big highway, a two-lane highway, that there are messages that come directly from your brain to your gut and vice versa, from your gut to your brain. And what we are starting to learn, and there's a lot more to know about this, is the connection between what goes on in your brain and how it affects your gut, and in reverse, what's happening in your gut and how it affects your brain. From my perspective as a psychiatrist, I was fascinated to learn, and this was long after graduating from medical school, how much your gut environment can actually affect your mood. So how does this happen? You're a nutritionist, so you know a lot about this, so feel free to jump right in, but Effectively, your gut does more than just digest and excrete waste. So it absorbs nutrients, um, both solid and liquid nutrients, so water, which is critical for life, and nutrients. And then, of course, in the process of digestion, it excretes waste products. But most people don't know that the gut has many more uh, jobs than just that. So... Most people don't know that the gut is intimately connected to your immune system, the system in your body that fights off disease. And if your gut is somehow uh, damaged, and we'll talk about the various ways that can happen, um, the result of that may be that that substances will actually leak out and travel through your bloodstream to distant organs. And that explains a lot of the um, disorders that we can talk about as well. So if you think about your gut as uh, a system, a long, long series of connected tubes, so to speak, from your mouth to your anus, lining the long tubes are a series of cells um, that make up what we call the, uh, the, the membrane, the gut membrane. And if you think of it as, let's say, bricks On a wall and the mortar between the bricks kind of holds the bricks together. Well, much in the same way in your gut, you have tight connections more often than not in your gut. And uh, however, it's not totally impermeable because you have to be able to absorb water and nutrients. If your connections become loose, think about the brick wall is getting a little bit the space between the bricks is you're getting a little bit looser. Then you have more of what we call a permeable membrane. The danger to that is if it's too permeable, substances from your bloodstream can basically enter. And in reverse, substances from your gut can actually leak out into the bloodstream and travel to distant organs. There comes the term, quote, leaky gut. And I say quote, because it's not completely accepted in the medical community as a diagnosis. It's a hypothetical term um, that I think has a lot of value. And knowing that there is a direct connection between your gut and your brain, you can see that if substances escape from the gut and into the bloodstream and then travel to your brain, they very likely could have an impact on all of brain functions. Like what?
0: I was about to ask, like, do you see with your patients common signs and symptoms that are linked to those mood disorders from like a leaky gut?
1: Well, I can't say that they're directly and solely from a leaky gut but certainly people who have digestive disorders have an increased risk of mood and anxiety disorders. So yes, there is an increased risk of people with uh, gastrointestinal disorders, whether they're autoimmune disorders um, or uh, uh, allergic type You know, uh, celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder. Gluten insensitivity is not an autoimmune disorder, but it is a disorder that can potentially impact your mood. And we can talk about how that happens. Um, So, yes, and think about it. If someone has a chronic illness that impacts their gut, it can definitely put them at risk for any kind of mood disorder because chronic illness is a risk factor for mood disorders. Now, the reverse is true as well. So, let's assume for the moment that I like to give this example, you're walking into a classroom and you're gonna take a test. And although you may be prepared for the test, there's a potential for you to get kind of butterflies in your gut. Some people actually have to run to the bathroom before a test. Sometimes they have to leave the test and go to the bathroom. So there's a connection between stress and uh, things that impact your gut. So for example, if you're anxious, you may be, suffering from diarrhea. The reverse is true. If you're anxious, you may be suffering from constipation or bloating or, uh, or heartburn. For example, there is a connection between gastric reflux and stress. So yes, there's a lot of these factors that are intimately you know, connected, but the term butterflies in your stomach is a true thing. Meaning if you feel anxious in your brain, it's gonna cause lots of different changes in neurotransmitters which are brain chemicals and other kind of um, neurochemicals that affect the gut. Um, and essentially what it will do is it will move in, in a situation of stress. Uh, there's a substance called cortisol that is secreted from your adrenal glands. And that has lots of impacts throughout the body. Um, one of which is to put you in the mode for, for escaping from danger. I mean, from, from caveman times, uh, we are built so that, if we believe we are faced with danger. And notice when I say, if we believe. So if you perceive that you are in a dangerous situation, your body will likely react as if you're being chased by a man-eating tiger. It doesn't know the difference. So as the release of cortisol takes place, what the body does is it prepares itself for flight. So it's gonna draw blood away from the digestive tract towards the extremities so that you can run away. And that sensation is what explains butterflies in your stomach. It's a decrease in blood flow to your gut. That is actually what happens when you feel that those flutterings in your gut. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Yes. I know you mentioned like the vagus nerve and with that enteric nervous system. I personally Mm -hmm. battle with POTS, so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, Mm -hmm. which leads a lot to um, like stress responses, mood disorders I used to have kind of not like erratic, but very, um, short fuses, I guess I get Mm -hmm. really irritable Irritable. very quickly. Yeah. And, um, just my emotions, I would just either start crying or just like experience really, really high highs and really, really low lows
1: Mm
0: kind of linked to that vagus nerve. Right. Um, with like the GI conditions, I mean, that's more of like a heart communication, but I mean, that affects that too. Um, -hmm. but on the GI side, do you find like a mode of treatment that helps like improve mood um, with this connection
1: between the, the brain and the gut?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's research that's been done actually. Um, they looked into, and this is uh, the dinner hour, so it's not really what you want to be talking about during dinner, but there was <laughs> research done on college students who were preparing for final exams and what they did was they checked the wastewater in the dorms uh, and in the sewer systems, and what they found was for the uh, the college students who were feeling depressed um, or incredibly stressed out during exams, they had an increase in their their um, bad bacteria in their fecal waste. And we can talk about good and bad bacteria because all there is, day long, <laughs> there is all day long, all day so, long. So uh and it, as and. Additional information has been really also fascinating in that there have been studies done on on individuals who have treatment-resistant depression, meaning they're not responding to your usual forms of treatment, either medication, psychotherapy, uh, uh, mindfulness, other forms. They're not responding to that. And there have been experiments done literally where these folks have um, received micro-fecal transplants And it actually shows that it improves their mood. So, um, but they're fecal transplants from healthy individuals. People who are depressed have a different gut flora or gut um, composition. And the composition of the bacteria in their waste is very different than people who are not depressed. So that's further evidence that what's going on in your brain affects your gut and vice versa. So are there things you can do? Absolutely. So some of the things that increase your risk of mood disorders by virtue of having GI uh, issues. If there's any kind of inflammation in your gut by virtue of having um, a poor diet, which we can discuss in just a moment, um, that can certainly uh, widen those spaces between your little bricks or your uh, the lining of your gut and allow more of a kind of leaking gut phenomenon to take place so that the quote bad bacteria or inflammatory process takes place and travels up through the bloodstream into the brain. And we know that inflammation is very much linked to mood disorders.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So what can you do? Well, just to talk for a moment about the gut environment, there's good guys and bad guys. And if you think about any kind of an ecosystem, whether it's a pond or um, uh, other kind of a forest, where there are uh, predators and prey. So there's good guys and there's bad guys, but they need each other in order to survive. The same thing takes place in your gut. There's good bacteria and bad bacteria. So what you really want to do is maintain a healthy balance of good and bad, or if anything, have a good outweigh the bad.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So what can cause a decrease in your good bacteria? Lots of things. One, and most commonly, antibiotics. So if you just take an antibiotic for an infection, which many times is necessary. Very common. It will knock out a lot of the good bacteria in your gut. And as a result of that, several things can happen. Some women develop uh, you know, vaginal yeast infections. Some people develop... Um, skin irritations uh it, in the worst case scenario it can develop into a serious condition called uh, clostridium difficile which may require hospitalization there really is an override of the bad bacteria that can be very serious to your for, health r-
0: for those who don't know what c diff it so c diff is the short term for that c diff is even one with um here at the hospital they are our contact precautions so you are fully gowned when you go into a c diff room Mm-hmm. Um, cause it can lead to very rapid diarrhea. Um, it's not a fun,
1: oh, it could be life threatening if it's not yeah. treated. Back right? to,
0: yeah. Very extremely dehydrated from diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. So it's definitely one to keep an eye out for.
1: Right. So what can you do to prevent that? Let's say you have to take an antibiotic and you're worried that these things might happen. Um, mm-hmm. take probiotics easy, easy peasy. You can just take your probiotic in the morning. They come in capsule form or you can have um, fermented foods. Fermented foods are great to restore healthy bacteria. So if you're not a fan of like kimchi or sauerkraut, or um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Kefir, tofu. Right. Exactly. All the fermented foods. If you don't care for those, eat some yogurt. Yogurt has a great amount of healthy bacteria in it that will help restore the balance. Um, so you want, again, you want the good bacteria to balance out the bad bacteria. If anything, you want there to be more of the good guys than the bad guys. What else can you, so what else can affect your gut biome? We talked about antibiotics. If you have to undergo, unfortunately, chemotherapy for cancer, that can absolutely do ha- play havoc with your GI system. It will, if you think about it, one of the most common side effects of, uh, of chemotherapy is nausea and vomiting. And the reason for that is the cells that line your gut turn over very, very rapidly. So the cells in your body that turn over the most rapidly are your skin and your gut um, and your hair. So what are the side effects of chemotherapy? Nausea and vomiting, dry skin, loss of hair, right? Because those are the cells that are gonna be most affected more quickly because they turn over so quickly. All right, so chemotherapy can affect it. Certainly radiation can affect it. Um, heavy alcohol use can affect it. Um, believe it or not, poor sleep habits can affect it. So this is one that many people don't know. And many doctors don't know that sleep and gut health are intimately related. So if you want to improve your gut health, make sure that you, know you have a, a good night's sleep. Um, that's for another podcast, but yeah. they are intimately connected.
0: Um, that'd be an interesting one to go over. Cause I feel like poor sleep and even simply eating slowly, um, mm-hmm. are things neglected that are easy changes to make.
1: Right. And in terms of diet, what you eat, the Western diet is not a healthy diet. That that's a blanket statement. And I know people would argue with me. Some people would, but health, really the Western diet is heavy into red meat, fats, fats, Sugars, high so those foods, right? So, when my patients come to me and they say, Well, what can I do? I don't really want to do anything extreme. So, I just say, Great, knock out all your white food, white flour, white sugar, white potatoes. Substitute things like sweet potatoes, whole wheat flour, um, whole wheat pasta, um, whole wheat bread. Just making those minor changes can make a huge difference. Um, so, Traditionally, the diets considered most healthy is what we call the Mediterranean diet, which is rich, which is high in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, fish, uh, and low-fat uh, meats. Chicken, and nut- nuts, turkey. seeds, legumes. Exactly, right? Habits are hard to change, and people are often resistant to change. So the last thing I'm going to do is tell one of my patients, you've got to completely change your diet. because." that's not gonna work, right? You have to be realistic. But if you can get people to change one thing about their diet, that, that may, right? So just get rid of the white food or try to limit your processed foods. Try to you know, have more whole grains. Like you said, if you don't like beans, um, quinoa is a very healthy food, which is, you can make it really tasty. Farrah is a really healthy food. And these have been around for centuries. Uh, I mean, they're high in protein as well, so they're good for you. You don't want to eliminate red meat? Okay, well, how about have leaner cuts of red meat? Because fats, as we know, are risk factors um, for Mm -hmm. gastrointestinal problems and inflammation. I'm not sure if you want me to address the idea of gluten, because I think that's a hot topic as well. It Um, is.
0: I actually have a note because usually when one has more of like a leaky gut, mm -hmm. hypothetically,
1: um...
0: usually start seeing more um, external signs and symptoms like dermatitis eczema psoriasis and i will usually recommend even if it's just reducing gluten Mm -hmm. um, and dairy because those are typically big allergen foods that will start to trigger that inflammation response that we were talking about earlier um but gluten i've had to go gluten free recently due Mm -hmm. to some gi concerns i'm Mm -hmm. getting officially tested for crohn's hopefully i don't have it I hope you don't either in january um but at least to rule it out will be nice but guys gluten is in everything as a binder Mm -hmm. you literally have to read labels or grow it yourself almost it seems like because if you're eating out you're definitely getting cross-contamination and um, i can definitely tell on the gut side when i've been exposed to heavy gluten even Mm -hmm. on accidents So.
1: So let's talk a little bit about gluten just so that your audience understands. Um, so what is gluten? Gluten is a series of proteins. And when people t- are say that they are uh, gluten intolerant or gluten sensitive, there's a component of gluten. I wrote this down because I didn't want to forget it, uh, is called gliadin. Mm-hmm. And what, what gliadin does is it activates another protein called zonulin. I know these sounds like from like, you know, uh, Star Wars, (laughs) but it activates zonulin, which which regulates intestinal permeability. So think about it. For people who are gluten sensitive or gluten intolerant, when they eat it, what's happening is they're essentially creating a form of a leaky gut, right? Because in their bodies, their bodies see gluten as an invader. And what the body does when it sees an invader is it attacks and it causes inflammation, and inflammation widens the spaces between the tight junctions in your gut. So think again: the bricks are expanding a little bit, so the bad stuff can get out. Now there is a difference because some people say, "Well, is is celiac disease the same thing as gluten uh, sensitivity or gluten intolerance?" No, no, no. Celiac disease is what we call an autoimmune disorder. And in order to diagnose it, your doctor will have to do various kinds of tests, including uh, blood test that looking for a specific um, gene. And without getting into too much detail, um, they're HLA genes. So HLA genes are uh, associated with many autoimmune disorders. But if you don't have that particular HLA gene, you may have gluten sensitivity, but you don't have celiac disease. They're different. Mm-hmm. Because celiac disease also impacts um, other organs. So it's not limited to just your gut, right? There are, as you said, there's uh, dermatologic or skin uh, disorders connected with it. There are um, uh, autoimmune disorders, other autoimmune disorders that are connected with it. There are um, arthritis, which is also an autoimmune. Some different kinds of arthritis are associated with it. Um, and, uh, it's also associated with mood disorders. Now the question really is, do you develop depression because you have this gastrointestinal problem and you have to eliminate all these kinds of foods? Is it that, or is it the fact that if you have celiac disease and you eat gluten, you're creating an inflammatory process in your body and that's, what's causing the mood disorder. Mm -hmm. We don't know. It's probably a combination of both. If I had a guess. So you know, once again, you see the connection between the brain and the gut and how what's going on in one will certainly affect, you know, the other. One thing that I didn't talk about when I was saying, you know, what can also cause damage to your gut flora, stress is a big one. And, you know, we live in modern day America. I don't care what your politics are. There's a lot of stress in this country right now. I mean, literally, you cannot turn on the news without there being some type of uh, you know, horror story of someone's getting shot or uh, you know, someone's uh, you know, attacking, um, attacking the capital, or you know, we've got a pandemic called COVID. I mean, it's just, or we're having you know, high inflation and the stock market's dropping. I mean, it's a lot of stress in this country right now. And people who perceive and um, experience stress in different ways definitely have an impact on their gut flora. So for them, it's really important to a, find ways to decrease their stress, but also to to do whatever they can to maintain a healthy gut environment, because you do what you can in terms of preventative medicine. We can't we can't stop the stress around us. We can change and learn how to change how we experience it differently um, and uh, or we can and or I would say both do things to build up uh, the healthy bacteria in your gut um, as a way of essentially, um, you know, building up your immune system because it is an important part of your immune system. The interesting thing as well from a psychiatric standpoint is one class of medicines that we prescribe for people uh, who have depression uh, are called the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And people have heard about these, you know, Zoloft, Prozac, Lexapro. They've been around, you know, for 20 years now. And they work by attaching to receptors in the brain that are called serotonin receptors. What many people don't know is there are more serotonin receptors in your gut than in your brain. Um, So I first learned about this, you know, years ago, it was probably 20 years ago when I read an article that was published, uh, came out of Johns Hopkins called, Is Your Stomach Depressed? And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So I started reading about it. And uh, that's where I learned that there are more serotonin receptors in your gut than in your brain. So if if you treat whatever's going on in your brain, potentially you can impact what's going on in your gut. I have a huge population of patients referred to me by gastroenterologists who have quote, irritable bowel. Now I put it in quotes because I don't think everybody has irritable bowel syndrome. Basically it's a wastebasket term for when they can't really find anything. And it just is an alternating episodes of of diarrhea, constipation, diarrhea, constipation, uh, bloating, uh, gassiness, discomfort. And the GI docs do what they can to treat it. And many times they're like, you should probably see a psychiatrist. If I tell you that most of these individuals have untreated anxiety disorders, and if you treat the underlying anxiety disorder, the irritable bowel goes away. Now the same thing would not be true for Crohn's because Crohn's is an autoimmune disorder. Mm -hmm. There are physical changes uh, in the large intestine for people who have Crohn's. They have ulcers. However, you can reduce the seriousness of that disorder and you can sort of mitigate the discomfort and the damage by modifying whatever's going on in the brain, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's both.
0: Have you seen, um, that's the best way to put this once People have started getting control of their gut and the inflammation response and Mm -hmm. eating better. Mm -hmm. Um, How quickly have you seen people's moods disorders kind of
1: turn around? Within a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen people get better within a month. You know, I have a lot of patients, as many doctors do in their practice, who are uh, overweight and are not happy about it. And they're also not exercising because they're overweight and they don't have the energy to do it. And we know that exercise is critical in uh, improving mood. So while we're waiting for antidepressants to work, people will say, well, what else can I do while I'm waiting? Oh, there's lots of things you can do. You can exercise, you can eat better, you can stop drinking alcohol or as much as you are, you increase your water, co- you know, your fluid intakes mm-hmm. and you sleep well. So, you know, but um, I will never tell somebody they have to go on a diet because diets don't work because no one wants to be put in a state of deprivation. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I might suggest is, okay, let's just make one change. As I said earlier, let's just try to knock out this aspect of your diet. Try to exercise 20 minutes a day, at least three times a week. Let's do something that we can about your sleep. And let's increase your water, your fluid, you know, water intake. When I say fluid, I don't want people drinking like Diet Cokes. Right. You know, because that's, bad. that's another one. I mean, you know, the, the artificial sweeteners are, are horrible for your gut. Horrible. They're sugar-free, calorie-free fluid. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. They're, they're horrible. Yeah. They're, they're terrible for your gut because artificial sweeteners are terrible for your gut. But they're also diuretics. So you're going to pee all the time and you're going to get dehydrated. Mm-hmm. When you get dehydrated, you feel terrible. You have no energy
0: which eating those increased sugars, refined carbohydrates will also lead to probably increased overgrowth of those bad bacteria, even fungus, which then makes that gap junction even wider in your gut. So it's like a rough cycle over and over again.
1: Yeah, it is. But the good news is that we can make changes and they don't have to be, uh, you know, enormous mm-hmm. changes. We can make, I don't know how you, uh, just, you know, recommend things to your Patients, but I, I will usually just start with, okay, let's just try, let's just try one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because the last thing people want to hear is you've got to change everything about the way you function because forget it, That that's now you're going to get non-compliance. Yeah. That's and overwhelming.
0: Really, not yeah.
1: fitting lifestyles. No. no, for sure.
0: My rule of thumb usually is take your day and think, how can I make this 1% better? Mm-hmm. And then you grow to at each meal period. How can I make this 1% better? Mm -hmm. And over time, they compound and just create these beautiful just lifestyle changes, Mm -hmm. um, Very keeping it simple.
1: Well, I think that's the key. You know, as I said, I think that not just humans, but systems basically resist change. And some of your listeners may have heard of the term, you know, homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Homeostasis is a term from, you know, environmental science, which basically says that, you know, systems resist change. So you think about it families resist change if one person starts to do something different the rest of the family is is not necessarily going to want to be brought along they may resist whatever change there is let's say one individual decides um i'm going to become a vegetarian the rest of the family is gonna "Mm, i don't think so (laughs) why you do this (laughs) i don't think so i don't want to do this um there's a reason that people get real invested in exercise as a uh, a New Year's resolution. And within a month, those expensive gym memberships and pieces of equipment are now expensive coat hangers or clothes hangers. However, I do practice what I preach. And so I will show patients photos of my bedroom where there is a Peloton bike where it has (laughs) been for the past two years and it doesn't have clothes hanging on it. It gets used every day or some form of it gets used every day. I may not be cycling, but I could be lifting weights. I could be working on my, my, you know, um, my core and my patients in my office. I don't have my uh, water bottle with me, but I do have this. So I have a big water bottle on my desk that like you do. Right. So we drink, you don't think gulp, it, you know, all at once. You drink it all day long. Right. And, then we talk to people about sleep. So just small changes when people, I don't want water. I hate water. I don't want to drink water. Okay. Well, could you drink say four glasses? Oh, well, okay. That's not so bad. So you start with something small. Mm-hmm. And then when people see how much better they feel when they're hydrated, it's not so hard to get them to come along.
0: Yeah, I think a, mix, a big misconception with water, everyone thinks is there's a real big trend. I have to have a gallon, a gallon, a half of water. No, a day. no you're and
1: not. Really you're awesome. not a horse. You don't have no. to drink as much as the horse.
0: I'm like, start at 42, 60 ounces um, slowly over the day. You start chugging it. Yeah, you're going to be running to the bathroom like eight,
1: right. Right. ten, <laughs> 10 right. tops a day. That's right. That's absolutely right.
0: Uh, what are some of your favorite like sleep like? sleep habit routines, like mm-hmm. to build a really good routine, um, to help your mind, like wind down, decompress. I've mentioned like no screen time, um, mm-hmm. within an hour, two hours before bed to a lot Absolutely. of my patients. That's,
1: that's a biggie. Okay. So I think that's a big one. And I'm glad you, you, uh, you brought that up because, you know, let's face it, everybody's on their screens all the time. And we're on the screen right now. I was on the screen all day at work. I was looking at my phone when I had to, you know, respond to things. Um, I might watch something on TV after this is over, but I might not. Um, I might read something on my Kindle before I go to bed. But you certainly want to limit anything stimulating. So you don't want to be checking your emails. You don't want to be, uh, you know, looking at the stock market. You don't want to be, you know, checking the day's horrible news. Um, you want to check the sports scores. That's fine, but you really don't want to be looking at your screen a good, as you said, I like the way you said two hours. I, I usually tell people a good hour. I want you to spend the hour before you go to sleep as shutting down. So your computer, <clears throat> pardon me, your computer is a big, uh, your, your brain is a big computer in your head. And if you think about your computer, it's got, pardon me, lots of USB ports. And so does your brain. It's got little USB, think of it as USB ports that connect to your brain and connect to various organ systems in your body. Right. So, what you want to do is, if you want your brain to be able to shut down, just like a computer shuts down in stages, right? You can't expect to get into bed after working on a uh, a document until eleven o'clock at night and instantly fall asleep. There are folks like that. They are few and far between. But ideally, you want to spend the hour before you go to sleep shutting yourself down in stages. So what are some things you can do? One is to keep a regular sleep and wake time. This is a tough one for lots of people, particularly for those who work at home where they don't have to be checking in at a certain time. Mm -hmm. So, hey, I don't have to roll into my office until like noon and I'm in my pajamas and and nobody (laughs) cares. And I can stay up until two or three in the morning and watch Netflix. Yeah, you could, but that's not the way we're, we're designed. Human beings are not designed to do that. Um, Maybe when you're a college student for a couple of years, you do that because that's the way teenage brains work. But as adults, those of us who work, set a regular sleep and wake time. Limit your screen time. Knock it out completely for the hour before you go to bed. Do not keep your phone on next to your bed. Put it on off. Put it on do not disturb. Because I have patients who literally, if they wake up at night to have to go to the bathroom, they come back to bed, they start looking at their phone. Like, what are you doing at three or four o'clock in the morning looking at your phone? That do not disturb features. Put it (laughs) down. Put it down. Put it down. Okay. So you don't want to be, although exercise is wonderful and I recommend it highly. It's good for everybody. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how how Mm -hmm. hard you work out. Exercise is good for everybody. Um, Not before you go to bed.
0: Right. Yeah. For those like me, I get very stimulated if I work out um, before bed. Right. But if anything, take an easy walk out in nature. So calming. So soothing. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go super hard intensity of exercise to see benefits on a mood or even gut health. Right. um, Level. So.
1: Right. (laughs) Excuse me. But not before you go to bed, because as you said, it turns on your metabolism. So your digestive tract is going to work faster and more effectively after you exercise, but it lights up a part of your brain that you don't want to be lit up before you go to sleep. So the big portion in front of your brain is called the prefrontal cortex. That's where a higher level of thinking and um, decision-making cognitive skills are. You want that to be shutting down slowly. Anything that's stimulating is going to light up your prefrontal cortex. Don't do Sudoku before you go to bed. Don't do crossword puzzles before you go to bed because it's going to call on your higher level functions, and it's going to light it up instead of dim it. If you think about, what are those things called when you turn the light on and off, um, the dimmers? What are, there's a name for it. I can't think of what it is. I call I just call them dimmers.
0: Dimers. Dimers.
1: Let's call it a dimmer. But I think there is is another name for it. But, you know, think about that. So you think the analogy of of that dimmer switch. So you want that to be slowly, 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 slowly slowly, turning down until it's off, go to sleep. Okay. So nothing that's going to turn it on and light it up and make you have to think uh, too much. Mm -hmm. Caffeine is a biggie. I recommend people do not consume caffeine after 3 p.m. I have people, this woman's in my office this week, really lovely person. She's in her 60s. She's retired. She's talking about the fact that she's not sleeping well because she has to get up three or four times a night to go to the bathroom. My first thought is, okay, well, how much fluids do you drink? Oh, I drink a lot. I drink, you know, 64 ounces a day. I said, it's great. When do you cut it off? Oh, I don't. I don't. Oh, wait, what time do you go to bed? Midnight. When do you stop drinking liquids? 11. I thought, that's why you're waking up at night. You need to sort of back it up. You can still have your 64 ounces during the day, which is wonderful, but you've got to cut it off at a certain time and your body will be hydrated enough that you'll be fine. Um, The other thing is, unfortunately, some of the things she's drinking have caffeine, hidden caffeine. Other things that would keep you awake at night, headache medicines. Some headache medicines, notably Excedrin has Mm -hmm. caffeine it's one of the things that makes it work. It makes it work fast. It works like I, a charm. I love it. That's my go-to medicine for a headache. I did,
0: I did that on accident. I had a two Excedrin before bed, and I was wondering why I was oh, up until yep. five in the morning.
1: And now you know, right? Oh, now know. you know. Um, what else? I don't know about where you are, but up here where I am outside of D.C., allergy season is horrible. So mm-hmm. people are taking allergy medicine all the time. Zyrtec, Allegra. That's fine. However... Some allergy medicine has decongestants in it. So if you have Allegra D, Claritin D, that D stands for decongestant. And guess what those decongestants do? They act like stimulants. They act like adrenaline. So they're going to keep you awake. So if you must take an allergy medicine, take a non-D mm-hmm. allergy medicine. So plain old Claritin, plain old plain old Zyrtec, not D. Sudafed is notorious for keeping people awake. Mm-hmm. Um, It's sort of a cheap version of of Adderall. Um, Okay, so we talked about caffeine, fluids, um, not exercise, no screen time. Oh, meditation is great. Many people will say to me, I hate to meditate, I'm so bad at it, I can't do it. I said, could you do it for 10 minutes? Oh, yeah, I can do it for 10 minutes. There's a great free app called Headspace that you can download to your phone. You can plug it in 10 minutes before you go to bed. Or 20 minutes before you go to bed, you listen to it for 10 minutes. Uh, it is very soothing. The gentleman who is the, uh, the voice of that particular um, app, his name is Andy. He's a former monk. He has a very soothing British accent, and he's very forgiving. I mean, he'll talk you through it and go, okay, well, your mind is drifting now. That's fine. We expect it. But eventually, <laughs> it will come back. And when it does, you know, just think about this, and you're going to find that you're drifting off again. Then if you do that, that's fine you know it's it's i use it myself i think it's really uh marvelous some people use a different one called calm c-a-l-m i've heard Um,
0: of. i've never tried an app for meditation i try to just set like a routine mm -hmm. sure i'm turning things off i'll read but maybe i need Mm -hmm. to be careful on what i'm reading right um even just like having like a steam uh like a what's it called essential oil like dehumidifier
1: rolling. Oh, great. So. That's great. Some people think, and I think it's probably true. Uh, there is an old wife's tale that says, you know, warm milk will make you sleep. Well, it's not the milk. It's the calcium. So many people tell me that if they take, I think it's, I forget the dose. It might be like a 500 milligram magnesium calcium pill. Um, they, they sleep better and it's good for you. Uh, you have to just make sure you don't take too much magnesium because that can act as a laxative. Yep. Right. It's a great uh, if you
0: need it for a constipation, but not when you're That's trying to sleep. That's Mag- <laughs> why milk of
1: magnesia has been around forever. Um, so I think I've kind of hit the main ones, right? So mm-hmm. schedule, caffeine, no exercise, no screen time, uh, limit your fluid intake, meditate, and if you're going to exercise, exercise earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. That'll actually improve uh, the quality of your sleep. Oh, and if you do need to take medication to help you sleep, I think melatonin is fine. Um, some people, including myself cannot take melatonin because it actually has a, um, paradoxical effect. It's stimu- it's stimulating for me. I learned that the hard way when I was an intern and trying to get some sleep when I was on call,
0: mm-hmm. not it's, working.
1: It's, it doesn't work. Um, one other thing you probably also want to avoid at bedtime. I know many people take B complex vitamins, believe it or not, B6 paradoxine is stimulating. Some, the other thing I will recommend to folks, honestly, and it works for many people, are, uh, is CBD. Uh, now, This does not have THC in it. This does not have a psychoactive component. Uh, cannabinoids um, are, have been around forever. And they don't have the active um, ingredient of you know, marijuana that makes you kind of buzzed. It just has a very calming effect. There is, I think, very legitimate company called Charlotte's Web, just like the children's book, Mm-hmm. that has a website and you can choose from it i mean some of them are just for calm some of them are for sleep um they come in different flavors some are gummies um i don't think the oil works particularly well because it, it's not absorbed um uh, evenly but you know many people do fine with you know a cbd gummy um before bed actually melatonin is fine um there is a uh a substance you can buy over the counter is called valerian. It's a root, valerian root It's great. It is, it's chemically related to Valium, but it's not Valium um, and it's not addictive. But many people do well with that. Um, there are other ones. I mean, I'm not astute in uh, um, herbal. Perhaps you might know that more than I do, but that wasn't a part of my curriculum when I was in medical school. But things like, you know, rose hips and. it um, yeah, would be a great follow up podcast rose. for me, too. Yeah. Primrose, I believe also, I mean, there's, there's a number of them that, you know, I can't quote you statistics or I can't quote you literature on it because it's not my, it's not my thing. I mean, you know, I could look it up. Um, so there are some natural ways. If you are, if you do need to take a sleep medication, you know, temporarily, I try to avoid the hypnotics in my patients. So a hypnotic doesn't hypnotize you. A hypnotic just not makes you, it knocks you out. So people have heard about things like, you know, Ambien, Lunesta, Sonata. They'll knock you out. They don't actually improve the quality of your sleep. So
0: it's medicine- like a level, like getting into that REM sleep. Like yeah, those, the really critical body.
1: portion of sleep, believe it or not, is what we call stage four, which is deep sleep. And that's the one that you really want to aim for uh, in order to feel rested when you wake up. REM is when, you, is when you're dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and people do need to have REM sleep but um, stage four is what's really critical. So the sleepers, as I call them, the hypnotics, or I call them the sleepers, they kind of knock you out. You don't really sleep better. Big misnomer. Alcohol is bad for your sleep. You've heard the term nightcap. That is a misnomer. Alcohol will knock you out. You will not sleep well. You will wake up throughout the night Either you'll be thirsty or the the dose will wear off because the half-life of alcohol, which is the amount of time it takes to clear half the dose is very short. So don't count on alcohol to keep you asleep. You might get knocked out, but then you're going to wake up. Um, The medicines that work the best. And I think are the safest are the low dose antidepressants, not the ones we're necessarily going to be using to treat mood disorders, but the old ones, things like trazodone, nortriptyline, um, Doxepin is one that's used by a lot of the sleep specialists now. These are just old, old, when I say old, they've been around for 30 years and in low doses, they're great for sleep because they allow you to fall asleep, but they actually improve the quality of your sleep. So my patients will tell me they, fake, they wake up feeling more rested when they take something like tra- a low dose of Trazodone at night. Does that answer the question?
0: Yes. Um, but for those listening, just remember you aren't an individual. Everything is unique to you. Try things, work with your healthcare providers, someone local in your area, and just know like one thing may work for someone, but it may not work for you. And just keep um, finding like that routine and what works for you. And I guess to wrap up, let's kind of summarize like some key takeaways for them to like,
1: take notes. Um, this is a lot of great information. Remember that there is uh, a marriage between your brain and your gut. So, what happens in one is going to affect the other, and vice versa. Um, Don't expect to change. Dr. Trackman and I, we got disconnected
0: um, over the internet. So, I'm going to go ahead and summarize our key takeaways from this podcast. Just to summarize real quick um, here at the end, again, this was so much great information, and I know we covered a lot. So, thank you, Dr. Trackman, for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise. Our main takeaways are. just kind of towards like overall gut and improving mood disorders, start with the simple habit of increasing your water intake. I typically recommend around 40 to 64 fluid ounces to start out with and sip it gradually throughout the day. Don't do huge gulps, trying to chug X amount of ounces by a certain time. So just a gradual um, increase over the day. Also, don't expect everything to change at once. Do one habit at a time, even if it's as simple as reducing sugar-sweetened beverages or added sugar intake. And then a great one also is um, eating the rainbow. So just add a fruit or a vegetable at each meal, aiming for that phrase 1% better each day. We went over tips for that sleep routine, so shutting down, uh, no screen time about two hours before bed using those meditation apps, uh, what works for you and your lifestyle. And then tips to help improve your gut flora is you can do uh, probiotics in a capsule form. There's chewables, all kinds. I recommend around like 20 to 50 billion CFUs and a multi-strain probiotic, as you all heard in previous episodes. Um, And then if you don't want to do like a probiotic, you can start with just fermented foods like yogurt, kefir, kimchi, um, sauerkraut, those kinds of things as well. So I just want to say again, thank you guys for listening and joining Dr. Trachman and I. Uh, this was a this this podcast was so much fun to do um for everyone. If you want to follow her, she is on LinkedIn as um I will post those links in her social on the podcast information, but she has a website. It's www.SusanBTrackmanMD.com. She's a fun little quiz there um, about mood disorders and um, a, like your knowledge on mood and how that can impact via the gut. And then her Instagram handle is also MD. Again, I will post those links in the podcast summary. All right, guys, have a great evening and thank you again for listening.